1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Beyond the farthest reaches of the imagination and deep within the human heart, here, in a time when the world was young, in what is known as the Third Age of Middle Earth, a tale is told of deeds and beings a tale of a day when a great shadow will fall across the earth and ancient sorcerers will lock in mortal combat with the phantoms of the night. Then will the raging war of the rings draw the blood of heroes and the final destiny of all mankind will be written. Then will mortal men with dwarf lords and elven princes come to stand together in a single noble army and thunder against all the hosts of darkness at the very gates of doom. This is the legend of Middle Earth as it is written in the hearts of men. It is a world more real than any other, a haunting, forbidden world where innocence can overcome evil, and a single dream is more powerful than a thousand realities. This is the magnificent gift that J.R.R. Tolkien left to the human heart, and that fantasy films now brings to the screen. The vision beyond imagination. The Lord of the Rings. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined today by Mr. Chris Honeywell. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm feeling very elven today. <laughs> You're feeling, what? what is that? Elven? Elven. I okay. guess I tried to say something Lord of the Rings-like. <laughs> well, let's, let's see if uh, our I'm other guest is feeling breakfast. dwarfish, because uh, <laughs> we also have Trentus Magnus with us today. I'm actually feeling a little more kingly today. Uh, uh, I got lots of sleep last night, got to sleep late today, so I figured that's probably what kings would do. So, yeah, very kingly. And it's been well, quite a while since you've been on the show, so it's kind of the return. 
Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, and it has been a long time. It, uh, my memory of it is we did the Behind the Mask episode, uh, what, like, two years ago? Probably or? like that. Somewhere okay. around there. So it's way too long, and I'm glad uh, we were able to find time to get you back on here. And uh, you, Chris and I have been talking about doing this for a long time. We're doing the 1978 Ralph Bakshi version of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And let's just put it this way. I had I, I, I downloaded this to watch it after we talked about doing it for the first time and I had to I got that download off um, an old computer from two computers ago. <laughs> yeah, that's how long we've been talking like, oh, about I know doing what this. Computer that, that file was on. <laughs> but I, I know from listening to your show that you had a particular appreciation for Lord of the Rings, uh, the Peter Jackson versions at least. And I thought well, it'd be interesting to get you on here with us as well to give your perspective on this. And then when I asked you about it, you said, you know, I never saw this before. So I thought even better oh, to okay. get that perspective on it. So why don't we each quickly give our initial perspective on this? And I'll start it off by saying uh, I consider this movie to be one of my guilty pleasures. And uh, Scott Gardner and I have talked about guilty pleasures and i mentioned this in the past because i think uh that conversation kind of defines my interpretation of guilty pleasures because i mentioned that one time and he said hell i don't feel guilty about anything i like and, <laughs> and I, I i agree totally i define so guilty sure about that <laughs> well this is what he said so sure i define guilty pleasures as something that is not as good as the pleasure you get out of it and that you can say to yourself i know this isn't that good but for whatever reason i enjoy it i don't think quite frankly that this is a great or even a really good movie uh but for whatever reason i've enjoyed it since i first saw it i first saw it on the uh before we were able to get cable tv in brooklyn we had what they used to call wameco home network which would show two movies a night and that was it it was an 8 o'clock movie, a 10 o'clock movie, and then, yeah, it was 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and then at midnight they would repeat the 8 o'clock movie. That was mm. what they showed every night. And it was a little box on top of your TV set. You'd put your TV to channel 3, and you'd get the image from the box, and the sound, you'd have to turn the volume off of your TV set because the sound came out of the box. Interesting. And, and I saw this movie on that, and they would have maybe 20 movies a month on. So over the course of a month, you'd it would get repeated many, many times. And back in the days of no cable, there wasn't a lot to compete with this. So I saw it in the first month probably five times. And it uh, was look, my I'm not introduction. trying to tangent us or anything, but my God, how have I never heard of this technology before? What is I've this? Got, oh I've gosh. got one of those boxes. He's oh, got you do? A garage I sale find? A garage sale a few years ago. Wow. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir. I really not at all. That, that, not that at was all. wild. Wow. It, 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 it's very nostalgic for me in a, you know, not in a good way. I don't look back and say, oh, it was better then. Uh, but it does, you know, bring back just some fond memories of what it was like. Oh, uh, there's, there, you could do a whole episode on, on those paid private TVs and the, and the, and the, uh, you know, TV channels, pay TV in New York city and like all the illegal box, you could go out and buy the illegal cracked boxes for them. And wow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. There was, was all a, sorts of stuff going on like that. Yeah. So I, uh, I, this was my introduction to the Lord of the Rings. So I ended up really enjoying it back then. And again, I, I'm going to define it as a guilty pleasure. Uh, it did 
intrigue me enough that at that time, so we're talking back in the mid to late 70s, I read the three Lord of the Rings books. I had already read The Hobbit at that point, so I guess that was my introduction. But I had no desire to get into the Lord of the Rings books until I saw this film. So then mm-hmm. I read them, and this was it. This was the only version you had other than the Rankin and Bass uh, version of The Hobbit, and then eventually they did Return of the King, uh, and they were of lesser quality than this. Uh, mm. But then, you know, eventually we got to Peter Jackson's version, which, as far as uh, filmmaking, is the definitive version. And uh, that's my introduction to this. So, Chris, how about you? Well, I I, I don't know. I, I hope I didn't tell you that I'd never seen this before, because I saw this in the theater. Wow. But I was a huge... I Like, when, when I was a kid, I basically elementary school i lived in the library and the librarian would just feed me stuff and early on she fed me the the hobbit and you know the hobbit like is almost made to read out loud to like little kids almost you know it has a lot of like oh poor mr baggins he just can't get anything right right now and so i whipped through the hobbit and i was just like and all my older nerd friends were like wait till you get to the lord of the rings ha 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 and i was like ooh, and the lord of the rings was a hard slog for me and like it had to be like third or fourth grade or something like that it was like it took me like three i would get through i would burn slowly through fellowship of the rings and then get and like a third of the way through the two towers and then have to start over again and i finally got through all of it and i loved it but it like as you said it was it was work i've never made it through the silmarillion but when the I don't know anybody I, who's ever made it through the Silmarillion. Actually, I don't know. Rankin, I've never spoken to anybody who said yes. I read that book and I enjoyed it, or or even I read I, it and I didn't enjoy it. Hmm. I, I I know a couple people who've read, who like keep it by their bedside and read it before they go to bed <laughs> at night. You know, type it's. Oh, it's a soporific. I, uh, not for me. Okay. But um, I and I and as a kid, I saw the Rankin Bass Hobbit, which. I always thought it was good, but I hated the songs. <laughs> I just hate songs in, in my cartoons, when, especially when I was a kid. Mm, and it's, I didn't really care for Orson Bean's voice uh, work in it either, to be honest with you. Oh, and it had, um, oh, what the hell was his name? Brother Theodore, this comedian guy who used to go on Letterman and torment Letterman. He was Gollum, and he was the scariest, most like threatening-sounding Gollum ever. His his Gollum was legit scary, but but when this came out, when this was coming out, I was pumped for it. I remember I was in art class and I bought the like movie tie-in magazine and I was copying a, a you know one of the Dark Riders paintings in a, like a heavy metal album cover in in art class and and I was all pumped for it and I got into the movie theater. And I was pretty disappointed in the in the whole thing. And then, you know, I knew it was gonna just abruptly end, you know, right after like Helm's Deep, with just sort of Frodo and Sam like wandering off towards the spiders and and just. But uh, I did not like the um, rotoscoping. I I thought of it as cheating, and uh, it was just generally generally like not happy with it but over the years especially this watching of it i like this watching of it i really enjoyed it all the all the way through 
hmm. for a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with it, but um, the rotoscoping still bothers me in some places. But um, I just like thinking about it. I don't see how he could have done it otherwise. Oh, he could have done pure animation. Yeah, but I mean, but he would have needed to like double, triple. I mean, that would have just put the budget. If if he, if you wanted to animate all those people running over a hill, you're just gonna have to pay people to sit at animation tables for days and days and days, twelve hours a day, you know. And it's so much easier when you just have to paint over something, <laughs> so much faster. Go out and film it, you know. That's true. And, uh, okay, I'll I'll give you that. That it's probably it was a definitely a cheaper alternative. And and I didn't know much about Ralph Bakshi at the time. And over the years, I've become a big fan of his. But he's known for biting off more than he can chew. And he's <laughs> known for for being a perfectionist and, you know, going over budget and and trying to get, you know, something perfectly that, that when he had this project, I mean, he had to sit down and think, I've got Lord of the Rings. I've got the option for Lord of the Rings. How could I, you know, he had to really think about how can I get this done? <laughs> and in your opinion, is is Ralph Bakshi the Terry Gilliam of the animated world? That's not a bad it, comparison. In a way, he's more flawed than Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam gets it done more like Terry like Gilliam's not, pretty flawed, bro. Sorry. Well, in <laughs> well, I'm in. In say final quality, I'll say okay, Barry right. Gilliam's put out a lot more like of just these sort of mint diamond movies that are very intricate and stuff. Where Ralph Bakshi seems a little more self-destructive, ah. self-subversive. Well, apparently in stuff. He's very very difficult to work with. Apparently, and, yes, and and burned a lot of bridges when he would make films. Whereas Gilliam appears to be kind of beloved by the people he works with. So that that's mm. a different thing as far as longevity and probably final product also. But, yeah, well, but as far well, as I animation style and the right? crudeness of it, I could see a definite comparison there. I think ba the difference is Brooklyn and and Terry Gilliam's like transplanted american and he's got he but he's totally got the british you know sort of demeanor i, I think i think gilliam's animation was more tongue-in-cheek whereas bakshi was more trying to be artsy yeah yeah he was trying to bring like the underground comic feel of things to to life in a, a with the you know disney quality cell animation which is hard work that's the thing about Disney is they can do that quality. That's why they usually outlive all the other animation studios because they can afford to have a lot of people working on something like that to make it look that way. Yeah, that is true. Uh, Trent, why don't you... Now, I, I already kind of gave your origin in that you had not seen this before, uh, but why don't you give a little background as far as... Uh, your introduction to Lord of the Rings and kind of what you thought going into this and uh, did you watch it once to do this or more than once and you know what, what what's your initial impression? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, my introduction for Lord of the Rings was actually opening day of Fellowship of the Ring, the the Peter Jackson film in two thousand one, and uh, you know there's it, it's like any you know film going experience when you're in your you know like at the very cusp of your twenties. 
and you know all these vivid memories and stuff that probably don't have much of anything to do with this episode but you know it's uh, my purpose in mentioning it is that it's always going to be colored by the fact of all these weird things that were happening in life at the time and uh, the the company that I was with seeing the movie and honestly came away really not understanding Lord of the Rings not understanding Tolkien or too much of anything. I mean, you know, that I went was going to the- be my first question: is not reading the books first was it like hard to grasp? Because, like, you know, by the by the time most, uh, well, not most, but a lot of people went into that, like, you know, they know knew sort of how the even people who'd read it like years before, you know, how the story goes and who people generally are and how stuff's laid out, and going in just as like the first time, it must be pretty dense. Um, it was the honestly one one of the real major parts of the um, uh, of uh, Fellowship of the Ring, the, the the Peter Jackson movie that I think really did give audiences who were total outsiders for this some kind of context for what this movie is was actually the, that extended prologue at the beginning of it, and um, but you know still coming out of the movie didn't really understand uh the world of tolkien and a lot of that really kind of comes down to a lot of my own personal preferences or at least my preferences as they were at the time that i was 20 21 years old when that movie came out that i was more uh focused on uh story and we were talking a, a little bit about this a while ago um at that time what i wanted in a movie was something that uh advances the narrative advances the narrative advances the narrative in every single scene as you would in a, in a Star Wars film, and that's just not the way that uh, Tolkien rules. That's not the way that uh, Peter Jackson rules. And so, you know, it, it was one of those things where you're surrounded by all of this very loud, very vocal, very passionate, critical acclaim for this this work that you understand is a is a monumental triumph. You know, the quality of it kind of speaks for itself. But it's like. You have no context for appreciating what this is. And over time, what I came to do was sort of crack the code of what the Tolkien universe is and how all of these things work and fit together. This isn't just a story. It's really a – it's almost like a sort of fictional history. And so when you stop thinking of it as a, as a story and you think of it almost in a weird kind of way as like archaeology – Mm-hmm. That for me was the the turnkey moment. So I read the novel Lord of the Rings, and I would fairly say devoured it. It was you know having this appreciation of it in mind gave me the ability to just just absorb all of this stuff. And you know it's like now for the first time ever, I finally get what everyone else is talking about. And when it came to this uh, Bakshi animated film. This is this has been on my list of future projects for uh, Paul, as you may remember. This has been on my list of projects for a pretty long time now. Something that I've wanted to check out, and so your your private message to me it really could not have come at a better time. So I went ahead. You can't buy it on iTunes at the moment, so all I, all I could do was rent it. And I just wanted to go into this thing kind of as I did with the Fellowship of the Ring film, just kind of totally raw, not really knowing a whole lot of what I'm about to see. And so, as the young whippersnapper in the in this conversation, I, I've, it feels kind of weird and maybe inappropriate to tell the guys that have been there, you know, from the beginning that I don't think I completely agree with you guys. I think this is actually a, a, a really well done, 
maybe not completely well executed, but definitely well intentioned film. It was fun. It was enjoyable. I there were a couple of things that maybe I might have wanted to see done differently, but in the main, I I really enjoyed myself watching this. You know, I I made up a a, a big tub of popcorn, and coming at this from the standpoint of you know Peter Jackson's work being sort of the foundation of my Lord of the Rings um, experience seeing the choices that Bakshi made that are similar to Jackson and yet uh, in some instances and yet in other instances he's making choices that are very different from Jackson's the compare and contrast of it all it, I just really enjoyed it it was uh, I, I only watched it the one time because I didn't I didn't necessarily want to uh, spoil the post movie glow that I had <laughs> so I watched it uh, the one time and like I say really enjoyed myself and Again, you know, there are there things that could have been done differently. Well, yeah, probably, but by and large, I think this was. Um, I, I can understand if somebody was perhaps disappointed by it, but I really enjoyed it. So that's where I'm coming from with it. All right, I, I, I kind of agree with you on everything you said. At the like when I first saw it, I think my expectations from it were for it were insanely unrealistic, and uh, and nowadays when I look at it and you have to look at it as okay this guy had to figure out how in two hours to you know he he picked a point okay we, we, we'll get to the end of the battle at helms helms deep in two hours and then you have to start making as peter jackson even did with his super long length length of time he had to do it in um you have to start making all the decisions of how you're going to get there you know what what's got to go and what because I mean, you could make a musical out of the the Lord of the Rings trilogy because they're stopping and singing songs. Apparently, I there is a musical it's... version. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so you have to think what what am I get? What are the essential parts of the story? And for Ralph Bakshi, he really had to like pare it down to the bare minimum of what will make this coherent and what will make and I'm and I'm sure he was a big fan too. So he didn't want to leave anything really important out and i think he did an insanely good job of doing that and t it, it, getting to where you are in two hours without losing anything vitally important and it flows well that's and, that's where i'm going to jump in on you a little bit and just by way of background apparently bakshi was introduced to this material in the late 1950s and kind of had it on his bucket list to do for years uh <laughs> Excuse me. The you know legend has it that uh, other filmmakers had had attempted to uh, to come up with a treatment for it. The Beatles and, had the option. Oh yeah, and yeah. and that uh, you know it it just it, it wasn't translating. Um, and what happened was he took a hold of it, and the studio, I guess, kind of let him run with it a little bit. He wanted to make one super long movie, and they told him no. Or, and then he compromised. He agreed to do two movies, and they, the studio apparently said, "Well, I tell you what, you do one movie, and if it's popular enough, then we'll do the second movie." And unfortunately, this wasn't popular enough. Although, from a financial point of view, I do think it was successful. Uh, the box office that's reported on it is 
uh, a $4 million budget and a $30 million box office. So that is a success. I'm a little surprised they didn't get around to a second, but I think he may have burned some bridges on the way. Exactly, uh, yeah. <laughs> but my my, uh, my disagreement with you after all that long-winded uh, talk is I think he did a fairly good job of adapting Fellowship of the Ring. Mm-hmm. And I, in, I was able to follow that narrative fairly well, and it actually made it easier to read Fellowship of the Ring after I had seen it. But I thought he kind of lost his way a little bit in adapting the Two Towers, getting us to Helm's Deep, lost his way to the extent that the narrative becomes much more difficult to follow. It almost becomes one of those movies uh, that I've I've likened to some James Bond movies where it's the you know the back the 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 location and who he's dealing with have changed and we really don't know why but just kind of go with it and i kind of feel like that's what happens with this movie uh you know from the point when uh, the fellowship breaks up until we get through helm's deep so if you at, from that point forward i think if you haven't gotten some of the history just sitting and watching it you you're a little lost and i think i was a little lost back in 1978 1979 whatever that was that i first saw it uh, until Mary, I read the Mary books. Mary and Pippin are very easy to confuse with Sam and Frodo sometimes when yes. scenes come in and you're like, okay, oh, okay, this is Mary and Pippin. Okay, uh, you know. It's also one of my criticisms, and we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but one of my criticisms of this uh, is Sam is made out to be kind of a buffoon in this movie. Yes. He, he's not really very uh, capable. He's, the, only, the only thing he does that he's kind of uh, efficient at is sneaking places. And even then, Gandalf finds him in the bushes in, you know, in a minute anyway. But uh, <laughs> he, I, I feel like he's portrayed a little buffoonishly in this. And he's not that in the book. And he's not that in the Peter Jackson version either. He's yeah. maybe a little bit withdrawn, a little bit shy, a little bit you know, overly loyal to Frodo. But he's heroic, and he's not presented that way in this movie. And I and no, I find that a little comedy relief almost. Yeah, I find that a little disappointing because his character really is pivotal to the story, and I'm not crazy about the fact that they minimized his his need, except for the fact that Frodo goes with him. You really don't need him in this story. Well, and I put things like, especially his characterization. What I was as I was watching this, I sort of put that down to the fact that if you were to make a, a Lord of the Rings animated movie or series of movies today you could probably get away with perhaps a more mature storytelling type of tone but i think the conventional thinking in the mid to late 1970s especially was that it's animated that means it's a cartoon that means it's for kids and so kids need to have something on screen that they're capable of laughing at. Even if that character isn't doing anything funny necessarily in that moment, the thinking I think at that time was that he they need to have that as sort of their anchor in the narrative. And I, I He might have been trying to do that a little harder than another filmmaker would too, because if I mean he did like Fritz the cat like his movies were full of sex and violence and swearing bef- before this. Yeah, and that was one of the things, like, I was coming into this thing, and I knew a little bit about this movie's reputation, not a lot, but what what people were telling me was that this is a a pretty good faith uh, effort at uh, on Ralph Bakshi's part of telling the Lord of the Rings story, but if they had not told me that, knowing that I'm going into a, another animated movie by the same guy that did Fritz the Cat, 
and this time it's with Lord of the Rings, and it's like, oh my, what is going to happen when I watch this movie? I mean, and so, but yeah, you know, it's just, I, I do kind of stand by that, that I think, could be wrong, but I think that there were a lot of assumptions made about the audience of the time that maybe were accurate and maybe they weren't. But nevertheless, I think that may have been the reason. For I, think, I think you may be onto something there. I, I don't think your your logic is is bad at all. In fact, I think it's very strong. Uh, but I still think it could have been handled more deftly. I think Agreed. you you could have had him be comic relief and be a strong heroic character. And speaking of things that were in the book but seem to be MIA in the movie, let's just start by saying if you're going to do a, a Lord of the Rings animated movie spread over two parts you go into this thing knowing that there's a lot of stuff that's going to have to get cut out. But I was kind of blown away by the amount of things that were omitted. You know, basically, there is no Faramir. There is no Eowyn. There, there is... Um, I don't remember seeing Arwen really anywhere in, in the movie. And no, this Arwen isn't a, is not in the movie. You're right. And this isn't a swipe at anybody, but I found it kind of interesting that I didn't... From a narrative standpoint, you understand, I didn't really miss any of those characters. Because when you think about it, it is kind of a an efficient way of telling Sam and Frodo's aspect of the story of getting the ring to Mount Doom, to just go straight there. And then in sort of the middle of things, Gollum betrays them because he was never really on their side in the first place. Whereas in the Peter Jackson film, he, I at least got the idea that Gollum truly was willing to help Sam and Frodo until he felt betrayed during their encounter with Faramir, after which he turned on them. And so this does sort of change Gollum's character arc a bit from uh, this just poor, terrible, wretched creature that nevertheless there was some small scrap of good in him that got wasted on a complete misunderstanding to in the Bakshi film. He was basically tricking Frodo and Sam from from the jump and he was just waiting for the right moment to make his move i assume we don't really know you know how that how back she would have handled that part of the story but i get the idea that it would have been just a straight betrayal as opposed to at, at one point tepidly being on their side do you agree with that i do i think in in at least in the jackson version and i think kind of in the book as well uh, he's more of a tortured character. He doesn't yeah. know what to do. And when he betrays them, it's more out of a, a weakness as opposed to conniving. Uh, you know, eventually he connives to come up with the plot with the spiders and everything. But the fact that he turns, I think, is weakness. And I, and I think he's, he's thrown, shown that way throughout the whole trilogy in Peter Jackson's version, uh, where you do at times sympathize with him. And that's really not seen in this version. Well, they, they, they do, and they do it in Peter Jackson and in this one, the the conversation with himself, and it's, it's um, he's got the split personality, and Smeagol is the pathetic, wants to help the hobbitses, and, and Gollum is crushed their heads. And, oh, and, so and, always... and Smeagol was a hobbit, so right, you, know, you, right. you could see also and, him aligning himself for that reason, and so feeling he... some sense of kindred nature to them. Yeah, it's just it's a variation of the good angel and bad angel and devil on your shoulders sort of conversation with with him. But he's definitely like I've seen like from from the Rankin Bass was the most threatening Gollum. Gollum seems to have become more and more 
sympathetic as time goes on in in the, his depiction, you know, on on mm-hmm. screen. And, and I, I, I think uh, I think you know, just comparing the movies a little bit, I think Peter Jackson took a lot by way of visuals from this movie. Yes. I think Gollum in particular is very much oh, inspired sure. by the by the Bakshi version, as well as just the general appearance for Gandalf. I think those two I, are, I would are, agree with that are strongly well. influenced, or, or they had a strong influence on on Jackson. No, there's a there's a 20 minute video somewhere on YouTube where somebody split screens it between the two movies, and they did a little bit of creative editing because they don't time out like you know they're not going shot for shot. But visually, you know, there's a uh, the they show the shot in uh, Peter Jackson's and in, in the Bashki one of of um, Smeagol diving into the into the pond, and uh, they're 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 just stylistically almost the same. You know, he he dives down and disturb a fish in the foreground gets disturbed, and there's the ring sort of lying there, and he and he reaches it, and they're just sort of both set up the same. But that I think also has to do a lot with with Tolkien's prose. Is there's some things that are just so like when you picture it in your head. Like when I read The Hobbit and then I saw the Rankin Bass Hobbit with um, Gollum and and um, Gollum in that version is much more toad like. Yes, and and he's just very very evil. But the see the 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 whole you know trading trading riddles scene in that you know, was very close to what I saw in my head. And and I think that's because it was so well described that, you you know, it, it puts a very similar picture in people's heads. But I'm sure, I'm sure um, Peter Jackson being the, you know, he's a, he's a big nerd. I'm sure he watched the Bakshi. I'm sure he wanted to pay tribute to it. In, oh, I would in, imagine. In a lot of ways. I think, yeah, he is a big nerd, and I think he took a lot from that. And I don't want to talk, you know, I mean, obviously, I I think it's impossible to avoid the comparisons, and we're going there. But at some point, uh, I'd like to invite you guys back on to talk about the Jackson versions. Uh, Of course. So I I don't want to go too far into our uh, descriptions of the Jackson versions, except as to how it goes to this. And I'm sure, as you said, Chris, that... uh, that Jackson, being the nerd he is, you know, gave this a, a, a close look and, and compared, took, you know, what what works in here? What do I want to use in here? What do I want to just kind of shit can because it doesn't work? Uh, and and I, I, you know, I think that's smart. I think that's smart filmmaking. So mm. why wouldn't you do that? Uh, going back to this version, though, what do you guys think now as to the animation? Because... And obviously, Trent, it's, it's, your only opinion is going to be now, but Chris and I will compare it to the past. Because when I first saw this, I was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more intrigued by it. And I found it to be a little bit more watchable, to be fair, than I do now. Now I find it a little irksome that the animation kind of goes from pure animation at times to that rotoscope look to what appears to be a combination of the two and it doesn't appear to move smoothly it has a kind of a jerky motion about it and it bothers me a lot more now than it did 40 years ago i'm i'm just the opposite it it, i'm it appeals to me now because i realize i think what happened with the lord of the rings is is 
there was just a period of time where it without just dumping all the money and resources you possibly could it was impossible to film the technology wasn't there and when we finally got to the point in technology where you could realistically conceive these this this vision they got the right director P- peter jackson was you know they luckily didn't have a hack so they they got the right guy and and it came off you know but when ralph Bash- bakshi had it you were severely limited into how you could present it so you have to go to a sort of more expressionistic way of doing it which i'll accept now as it is what it is so then i take it as that so like what really annoyed me as a kid was like all of a sudden there would be the background would be gone and you'd have like a psychedelic splash on there as just sort of the the background or something and and the sort of posterized colors and stuff like that and you know now i'm realizing a lot of that was to hide the fact that it was you know extras in 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 dumpy masks and then the other extras who were even cheaper that were just like burlap sacks over their heads that but that's sort of what you had to do then to get it done so as such i i sort of enjoy it more it's almost like reading a comic or something like that more than anything where sometimes they evoke the backgrounds you know in the very beginning the the backgrounds and stuff look like tokens uh paintings he used to do of middle earth mm. and then as it gets more into the battle the as the as they start running out of money <laughs> the, the the movie loses backgrounds as much and and like you were saying Paul it sort of loses shape you don't know where you, it's a lot of shots of big crowds running over hills and clashing with another crowd which yeah. is which is neat but it doesn't get you oriented or anything yeah it doesn't immerse and, you the same way right because it's and, uh, not you know there's not that detail work I, I found that I was much more tolerant of it as a young person i don't know if it's the get off my lawn attitude or if it's just (laughs) that i've seen how good it can be now but when it comes to like really poor animation um and i'm not saying this is really poor it's just not at the point where i'd want it to be but animation like this much better than this uh clay a lot of claymation stuff you know, like if you put on an old Davy and Goliath cartoon, it's it's almost cringeworthy how bad some of the animation is. Or if you go to, you know, like Gigantor or Speed Racer or, you know, some of that stuff from the, you know, from the 60s, in my mind, it just doesn't hold up. And this is kind of falling into that a little bit for me. Now, you and I, I we have the perspective of having seen it and grown up with it to some extent. But again, Trent, this is new to you. And what what was your take on the uh, animation as you watched it? Well, the um, the animation again coming at the as you say from a kind of different standpoint than you guys a little bit. Um, I actually really enjoyed it. You know, um, my way of rationalizing the sudden change in uh, animation style uh, and just these really uh, dense and heavy monochromatic uh, images that are just flashing across the screen is that the the evil of Sauron is so potent that it has spilled out even onto his minions, and they bring that with them everywhere they go. And so maybe the sun seems to shine less bright the instant enough orcs show up. Or when you get a bunch of them together, you know, now they're actually, it's enough to blot out the sky. And, you know, that was just, 
maybe it's it's a rationalization for me to uh, excuse something that possibly shouldn't be excused. But for some reason, I just I enjoyed it. You know, I like the. Uh, there's no way to say it without sounding a little bit condescending, but I kind of liked the '70s-ness of it. You know, it, yeah. it really added a lot of flavor and character to the piece for me, which might. I'm going to be honest with you guys. If I were to just sit there and watch what I assume was the original live-action plate photography that they made, might actually look a little bit chintzy with all of these uh, uh, stylizations that are uh, tossed in uh, on top of it. It actually makes the uh, presentation, at least for me, a little bit more credible. And at the same time, like I say, a little bit more 70s-ish in a very positive way. You know, not to be like rude or anything, but just in a very positive way i uh, i enjoyed it my honestly my biggest criticism of this movie which we just need to triple underline this part this thing is a product of its time but really my biggest criticism is really the the design and line style that was used for aragorn something about that just it, i mean he has like the big pilgrim belt buckle and it, he almost looks i don't even know what but it's just this is Reading the book, this is just not at all the way that I He looks like it. an American Indian pilgrim. Yeah, I was trying, not to, looks like. I was trying to find a, a way to not say that, but thank you, Chris. <laughs> yes, that is that is exactly what I meant. You know, he he. And, but uh, but beyond that, just from a physical point of view, he doesn't have a charismatic, appealing look to him, uh, which Aragorn does in the movies. You know, you 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 would follow him <laughs> if, if you were Frodo, because Frodo is your point of view character. If you were Frodo, you would follow Aragorn from the movies, Viggo Mortensen. You'd follow him and do whatever he says because you trust him with your life. Uh, this yeah. Aragorn, not so much. <laughs> he comes off as a little shifty in the beginning. Yeah, actually. yeah, and, and and the thing about it was, you know, those uh, those little bits and <clears throat> scenes and moments that we get with Saruman. It just kind of made me wonder, you know, like if if I meet the the Bakshi version of Saruman in a dark alley. Am I any more scared of him than I am the Bakshi version of Aragorn? I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know, they're both just kind of weird-looking, weird-looking character designs. And, uh, but honestly, I mean, that's that's about as that's a. I, I'm kind of having to scrape the bottom of the barrel to find something to critique. I just, I don't really have a whole lot of uh, negative things the, to say. What about the butterfly rug? The butterfly rug. Well, the bell rug. Yeah, the least oh, rug ever. Okay, well, all right, look, I, I can excuse that from the standpoint <laughs> that if you read the book, that there's not really a clear description of what the Balrog is. And so uh, there's a certain filmmaker who directed a live-action version of Lord of the Rings who had one interpretation of that, and then Bakshi, I think, had a different one. I think as long as you stick to what's on the page and whatever it is that you create is consistent with that, you've actually got a lot of leeway. And so, Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just I, saying it looked it looked more like a guy in a cloth. It looked like, um, you know what it reminded me of a little bit? Of uh, Snookums from the Muppet show. <laughs> you know what I mean? A guy a guy in a big loose suit and stuff, and then they and then they, they gave him a nice psychedelic. I mean, he's nice looking in a sort of color palette sort of way, but he's not as threatening as, you know, he's sort of uh, optically printed guy on a set that's coming coming up to you and cracking his whip a little bit but uh you know what what once once it gets the you know you shall not pass part it's 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 pretty neat but it just doesn't it was well it's just, just that sort have, of we, 
the money Zelda. that back then and and he made the decision to you can go on YouTube and find um there's there's footage of of them shooting the the you know the live action stuff and what it looked like live action mm-hmm. and some of it looks pretty good but you know I mean they had to mass produce orc masks so they were just sort of like a Halloween mask that everybody put on well it's it's well, you know not- com- comparable to uh when they did beneath the planet of the apes and if you look into the uh the stands and you and you see that they're just regular actors wearing masks as opposed to any kind of makeup, makeup. job on them. Yeah, yeah. But uh, well, it's funny because totally... I'm sorry, I didn't, I don't, I don't want to step on each other. But YouTube has a video and it's called the unscary Balrog, and they show the scene from the movie. <laughs> mm. Well, the um, that actually kind of hits upon something that I that I had in my notes. You know, all of these things that kind of got by necessity had to be omitted from the movie. One of the more unfortunate uh, omissions, uh, this actually I, I think does kind of damage the narrative. You know, if you want to eliminate Faramir from from your Lord of the Rings a- adaptation, that's okay. Um, Arwen, this too is okay. She's not a major element of the book. She's more in the appendices, so that's that's fine. Eowyn, that one hits a little bit harder, but, you know, I guess you can do that as well. But eliminating the explanation of how... Gandalf, he didn't even come back from the dead. He never really died in the first place. And, you know, his battle with the with the Balrog was basically sort of step one of his transition from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White. That never really gets explained anywhere in the movie. And I don't think the movie is any better for that because the viewer watches Gandalf plummet into that abyss and then now he's back. And there's not really an explanation. I mean, even if they said that well, he's a wizard, and they're not really mortal in the strictest sense of the word, so he may appear to have died at one point, but this type of being is virtually, it's like next door to impossible to truly kill this this person, so he, and, and just kind of lay that out there as, as just to kind of seed the field a little bit for when he comes back, you don't want to get bogged down in a huge explanation of what happened how did he come back why is he white rather than gray and all that you can just at least put something out there but it's literally nothing is is ever explained with gandalf and someone who knew absolutely nothing about lord of the rings would watch that and think okay well wait wait a minute i just watched this guy die all right there's got to be some kind of explanation for how he could come back so why aren't we getting it and honestly that's that that's more of a, I guess, a quibble specifically with the narrative. This is, like I say, one of those times when the omissions work against the story. And I think yeah. in this case, very badly, in fact. And the way the way he worded it, it almost seemed like he did die and was sort of somehow by somebody granted a second, not a second chance, but sort of given just like a temporary lease to complete this task. Or you know, it it it, it's, it was kind of weird the way. He just, well, now that they're doing it as a TV show, at that point, they could just sit down and do a whole episode of the show. <laughs> but I don't think of, they're of doing what? a strict ad- adaptation of the books in the show, aren't they doing... They're doing it's basically the adventures like, so... of Aragorn before the... Well, oh, okay. Or at least that's what season one's going to be. Who knows what future seasons might be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when, we're not, you know, not going to get the same thing. It would be interesting to see how they would adapt the book on a long, you know, a long narrative. 
Not that not, not that the three Jackson movies aren't a long narrative. Well, but well, that's the thing is though you could actually do. I I think it's almost like it's not like stretching the uh, audience's attention span, but like. I mean, I know a lot of people who just sit down and do an annual viewing of the Jackson Lord of the Rings, you know, just for right fun here, every, that's me. every year. And and so then you, you get used to that. That's that's, you know, nine hours or so, or plus, especially if you got the expanded editions and all that. And those people are ripe for watching a 48 hour version of the story because they've also read the and then you can see. All that other, you know, it's just an opportunity to, to make it more and more like, you know, Tolkien's vision. So it's it's almost like you, you shading it. Each permutation of it gets more and more shaded in and has because you never would have been able to sell people on a, on 10 hours of Lord of the Rings. You would have been able to sell a certain amount of people, but. At, at, like say the the time of um, Bashki, as much you know, it was a different different industry at the time. It was a different media, and and it just w- it just wouldn't have happened. So you I know, don't know. I still think it's too soon to like tell this the Lord of the Rings story again. It just seems like a little ridiculous. But I'm I'm sort of glad it's going to be other stories. I th- yeah, I think they tend to agree with you, and I think that's why it's going to be other stories, because I think it is too soon. Uh, you know, it's not as if Peter Jackson made one three-hour movie that was all three books, which apparently was originally Bakshi's uh, intent. He he made three, effectively, three three-hour movies. He, he had his chance to tell as much of the story as he could in that time, and I think the audience is satisfied that he did a good job telling that story, and I don't think they're ready for it to be retold yet. Right, right. Well, I mean, the the imagery of it is, and the actors are so iconic and burned in, too, that it's just like, you It's know. almost like remaking Jaws in a certain kind of way. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. why would you I want to do that? I would not, don't. You shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, Although this, it'll make for a scintillating episode of Is It Jaws. The, the logic, the logic I've always Jaws. adopted. I remember reading uh, re- reading a review of a remake, and I don't even, I couldn't even tell you which one it was. But they said there's really only two good reasons to do a remake of a movie. And mm-hmm. one is the special effects have advanced to such a point that you can tell the story much better than you could the first time around. Mm-hmm. Or two, that it was a really good idea that was improperly executed the first time. I would add to that that sometimes you can retell a movie because there's a new perspective on it that just wasn't shown, even though it was done well the first time. But I think that those are fewer and more far between. Uh the first one is the most likely one where the special effects and, and ability has it enhanced enough that it's worthwhile to make it. Uh, the second one, I don't think you see that often because you don't get the automatic buzz for a movie that wasn't done well the first time. Right. Yeah, it's the only like, one of those make that money the first of. time. Yeah, the only one of those I can think of is Ocean's Eleven, and I don't think anyone really despised the original Ocean's Eleven. It just didn't have. It wasn't necessarily well loved whereas the remake i think more people at this point i i, I would even go so far as I, don't, I i would i think most people don't really realize that 
the Soderbergh remake of Ocean's Eleven is a remake. You know, that's like they don't seem to get that. No, there was another one. It starred the Rat Pack. And, you know, that I think history will forget the original version, oddly enough. If it I, I, I think you're right about that. I think the same with the, um, what was it, Gone in 20 Seconds? Oh, I didn't even know that was a remake. So. That was a, yeah, that was a low-budget movie originally. You're seeing it now. Uh, with It's a different audience than we're used to dealing with, but you're seeing it with the recent remake of A Star is Born that uh, most people think, oh, yeah, it's a remake of that 1976 Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson movie and don't realize <laughs> it had been made twice before that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. <clears throat> so now getting back again, I, I, we got to keep, Forcing ourselves to go back to Bakshi here. Um, no, no, not at all. It's uh, I, I do like uh, that the conversation kind of takes well, us wherever it's going seen to. Have you guys Wizards before? Yeah, I have. I, in fact, I have a copy of it. Because Wizards, Wizards is very. The, I, I was Wizards is sort of like his first attempt to do his own. It was like Lord of the Rings plus that underground animator Von Bode. Like a lot of his ideas of. Uh, like from underground comics, but it was it was sort of like an underground comic version of Lord of the Rings, and he did a lot of the same things. He used like World War II footage of tanks and stuff, and and rotoscoped over it, and and troops. A lot a lot of the armies of orcs look like old World War II footage, actually. Because mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm pretty sure he shot it in black and white to make it easier to paint over, to be more distinct to paint over. So it it just like a lot of it looked like old war footage. So so he sort of practiced for Lord of the Rings with wizards, I thought. But wizards had a little more. I was expecting Lord of the Rings to be a little more like wizards, to have a little more of that flowing animation style to it, and and freeform weirdness. Yeah, I I would agree with you. And maybe maybe one day you and I have to. Uh... Do that one, and uh, if 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 you're both interested in it, maybe the three of us would have to. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen Wizards in a long time. Yeah, I haven't either, but I do have a copy of it, so I could watch it anytime it's got that we're more ready hot to go ladies ahead. Ladies in it, yeah. <laughs> what did you think of the voice acting in this? Now, there's only two actors that I'm familiar with. Uh, we have uh, John Hurt, and we have Anthony Daniels. Uh, other than that, I don't know anybody else that's in this. Uh, by name or reputation Uh, so I don't know if you guys do uh, but I'll hold back my opinion on the voice acting until I hear yours Um, well there was a a Spider-Man animated series I can't remember if it was Electric Company or if it was that uh, later uh, 70s uh, animated series but uh, I don't even know it's like Spider-Man sounded kind of like Mr. Ed in a weird kind of like a deep throaty Barry White meets Mr. Ed kind of kind of voice, and that's sort of the way that Aragorn's voice came off to me in this movie. It's like he talks very funny, and it's I, I can't even really do a, a very good impression of it. But it, this whole time I was thinking, you know, somebody got paid a lot of money to listen to his audition and think, yep, that's the guy that we need. <laughs> well, that's that's just, John Hurt. That's one of the few actors that I am familiar with, and I'm sure. I, and I'm, I'm sure sorry you know. to denigrate his work. I'm sure no, he's a wonderful actor, but it's this whole. It's like Aragorn looks weird. He sounds weird. What? What is? What am I looking at? What is this? <laughs> so anyway, sorry about that. But there it is. That's, no, not at all. Otherwise, the voice talent I largely enjoyed. I mean, you know, again, it has that kind of late '70s Saturday morning cartoon kind of. 
uh, performance to some of this stuff, especially with Saruman. <laughs> you know, I'll get you, you know, and, yes. and, and things like that. And Saruman just does not, does not talk that way. He just doesn't. But it's, again, it's a product of its time. So it, it's not really appropriate to criticize too much for that. But that's where I was coming from with it. To me, the voice work, it's very, I, I just try to view it as, functionally as possible and just not dwell on it too much but aragorn really did stand out like wow <laughs> my my rule of thumb with this is the shorter you are the more pleasing you are to listen to in this like all the all the all the full-size human voice actors are sort of just doing the it, it they all come off as stiff and and just wouldn't doing the you know semi not formal speech but there's just sort of a graveness to it and you know uh, of of old timiness to it that it ends up they all just sort of be are just sort of like stock characters i mean john hurt had nothing to really put a lot of like intense acting into anyway into it but when you get into the hobbits and gollum they're um they they they've got some life to them, you know. Their 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 characters are a little are a little more um, down to earth and and relatable. Although not especially, you know, Gollum Gollum is really good because you know, come on, Gollum is just the fun character of Lord of the Rings. He's whoever gets to play Gollum gets to have a lot of fun, and 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 he was good in this. And I like the orcs. I like the orcs being kind of like they they have good hissy idiot voices and uh, amazingly they're they're the only human-sized things that have any kind of personality although they could have had more you know that the the whole scene over mary and pippin there could have there you didn't really get they could have really uh gotten you to know they they did make distinct orc characters and they were fighting with each other but they could have made it a little more distinct but I think generally the voice acting was almost like the second was not on the top list of Ralph Bashke's, you know, priorities of getting perfectly well. So I think he was looking for, you know, getting something that just worked. Yeah, yeah not, nothing like I didn't even know it was Anthony Daniels till I saw the credits afterwards. And I was like, oh, I'll have to go back and see a couple lines, see if he, but, you know, he didn't sound like C-3PO. But, no, um, no, he didn't at all. Which, which was good. But, um, I don't know. I think in the last 20 years, voice acting as an art has has become more acknowledged and the, the voice actors are given more leeway to actually act in a movie now. So it's like Trennis was saying, it's a product of his time of its time. It sounds exactly like you would expect it to sound, except for Aragorn. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's just. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of life to the voice. Acting. Yeah, for the, for the most part, you're you're echoing my thoughts on it. Uh, I, I when I first started to try and think about you know the the voice acting, I thought the characters all seem totally beleaguered and like with very little life in them almost. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I thought, well, there were exceptions to that, and I didn't make the the distinction that you did against tall people versus small people, uh, but that yeah, the the people who I feel like have the more life are the smaller people. 
uh, the, everybody else just seems like you know, like they're just tired, uh, and they, they don't they don't want to be there. Which mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can understand why you wouldn't necessarily want to be in this conflict. But they do a lot of running from place to place, so that you, there's that. Yeah, I I I think you you hit it on the head though that I think Bakshi was more concerned with the animation, and he probably maybe even had somebody else who was in charge of the voice direction and yep. his big, his biggest concern was probably just that it's you know fairly well synced but other than that he probably didn't care that much as to whether or not they were emoting or whether they were just sounding bored or whether it was somewhere in between that's at least the impression i got with it well you can get away with a certain amount of formalism with those those guys in this cuz that was sort of how it was in the book there was very formal sp- speech and stuff but Especially yeah it doesn't yeah. you know peter jackson realized that you had to give a lot more life to the he had more room to give life to the characters too but you know his his dwarf is way more animated than the dwarf in here although you know he's a he's an actual human being that can jump around too it doesn't cost money to draw him jumping around <laughs> <laughs> now uh trinus you mentioned uh spider-man cartoon were you talking about the 68 spider-man series uh, it, it it could be it could because be, he I did just, do he did do a very different voice as Peter Parker than he did as Spider Man. He he kind of did Peter Parker as as a young person and then Spider Man as a man. Right. Uh, and just just by way of trivia on that, uh, Bakshi was connected to that series. Uh, in in I believe it was two seasons. I believe he was connected to the second season, uh, and the voice actor that played that. Peter Parker and Spider-Man, uh, you can see him in the Incredible Hulk movie, the Edward Norton one. He's mm-hmm. he's the uh, owner of the pizzeria that they go to. Really? I did not know that. So, wow. Just, oh, a, wow. just, just a little trivia for you. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he's... I, I heard an interview with him. I can't tell you off the top of my head where it was, so I'm sorry. I'm not giving somebody a plug for it. But uh, strikes me as a, a real good guy the uh, voice actor i don't even mm. know i couldn't tell you off the top of my head who he is there may he for all i know he did a voice in this in this particular uh movie why not yeah since <laughs> since Bakshi was connected to that cartoon i wouldn't be at all surprised if he went to that well to get voice actors well and i would i don't know this to be true but i would assume that it was different back in those days that not just anybody was doing voice acting whereas i think these days like Everybody does it, or is, or at least everybody is willing to do it. Whereas maybe back in the mid to late seventies, when this movie was being produced, maybe you just had. There's maybe more you prestige just, you, to it now, for sure. Yeah, and you just had to make do with whoever you can find, and so maybe that's another thing to keep in mind. You know, here I was bagging on Aragorn just a little while ago. Well, that may have been the best choice that was available so maybe i just need to keep my mouth shut a little bit no 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 um, we said that just just because uh, there were limitations to how they did it doesn't mean it's not subject to uh well, an evaluation of whether it was done well or not probably okay. at the time there was a stock group of of voice actors you know that were doing all the car you know the you know they that did all the cartoon voices and all the christmas specials and and all the, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and stuff, it was probably like 20 or 30 people, you know, yeah. less. Okay, to give you and, another, another piece of trivia on it, just by the way, sorry to interrupt you, Chris, uh, that same voice actor was also Hermie, the uh, elf who wanted to be a dentist in Rudolph. Ah, mm. yeah, see? <laughs> and uh, 
and Bakshi was probably like trying to get a few, you know, you know, get John Hurt would be somebody different, you know, and it would be, and John Hurt, I don't think was huge then, but he was an up and coming actor for sure. I don't know if he'd done like Altered States and. I don't think he did uh, Altered States yet, but I think he had done The Elephant Man. The Elephant Man. Oh, yeah. So he actually, he probably was kind of a, he was probably kind of a hot property and they were probably, you know, probably like, let's get somebody hot in here to do one of the main characters who's, who does, like, people aren't going to go like, oh my God, Aragorn, he's the guy who did Grape Ape, you know, or <laughs> whatever. You I'm know. just, I, I just quickly clicked on him on uh, Wikipedia. It said in 1978 appeared in Midnight Express was nominated for a best, uh, Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. At the same time, he lent his voice to Ralph, Ralph Bakshi's animated film Lord of the Rings, playing the role of Aragorn. So he I mean, was a young hot property at the time. Elephant Man was 1980, so that was later. Later. He but... also he also did, he did a vo- voice acting in the movie version of Watership Down. Oh, okay. And that's another one I haven't. Uh, Mark Kambach just sent me the sequel to Watership Down. I didn't know existed. I didn't either, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I guess he he was open to live action and animated voice acting. So uh, you know, but he was. If I was an know, actor, I'd always want to do voice acting. So easy, no makeup. You got your lines right in front of you. You're sitting in a nice room with your coffee. Well, well you're, um, anybody making any animated films, Chris is available. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, if Mark Hamill is to be believed, he said that. Um, you work just about as hard uh, in terms of hours that you put in and the amount of study that you have to do with voice acting as as compared to a, a conventional movie role. And uh, now he said the upshot is people are less likely to see the outtakes, you know, which he apparently considers to be a positive thing. But, you know, the downside is, you know, he said that, you know, the money is usually less and you, you end up working about the same hours. And so he said it's, it's a lot of fun creatively just because of the sheer number of characters that you're able to play and the amount of projects that you're able to do in a given year. But, you know, he said that basically it's his point was, work. you know, there, there are upsides and there are downsides to it. Mm-hmm. So and of all people, I've, I assume he would know. So. Okay, moving along on this, uh, and I think you guys are probably more equipped to comment on this than I am, just because it's not something I generally fixate on, but what did you think of the the score, the music in the movie? I liked it, um, generally. I I, I own a vinyl copy of it somewhere. Um, It's a little bit um, of its time in... You know, it's it's very on the note, dun, 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 type of sometimes, but for the for the most part, it works. With this, I I um I'm not a fan of the as much of the Peter Jackson music because I don't like that Irishy sort of sort of stuff as much. So I I liked the big brash orchestra aspect of it somewhere. And you can probably find it. I'll bet you it's on YouTube. There is a 12-inch disco remix of the <laughs> Lord of the Rings theme that you can. That I, I actually have the 12-inch vinyl of it, and uh, you know it's it's that theme, that heroic theme to disco music. But then in the middle, it gets all evil and does the the Mordor music. All mm. it, 
you know, disco thump clap going on it. <clears throat> See, I, I thought um, it, I thought he was going for a uh, swashbuckling Robin Hood type feel with the mm-hmm. score in this one. I'm sorry, right. I, I stepped on you there. No, it was just very. It was, you're right. It was very. Um, it was very classic. It almost sounded, yeah, like a Robin Hood movie from like the late '50s, you know, yeah, or or even even the late '40s. Yeah, I was gonna say some parts of that sounded very uh, Errol Flynn to me, and I, I don't know. I mean, again, this is one of those times when generational perspective is gonna factor into things a little bit, but. You know, coming off of, I've been, you know, just, I don't know why I did this, but for some reason I chose to spend a a good part of the week leading up to uh, watching uh, the Bakshi Lord of the Rings, uh, listening to Howard Shore's uh, scores for uh, the Jackson films. And I don't think the comparison benefits, what's the guy's name? Rosenman? Yeah, Leonard Rosenman. Yeah, Leonard Rosenman. I don't think it works to his benefit. Now, here again, we do need to contextualize a little bit. This thing is a product of its time. So if what you're expecting is something along the lines of Howard Shore's work, you're going into this thing, I think, with kind of skewed perspective. So buyer beware on that. But, you know, even with the idea of placing this thing into its proper context, I still thought the the score, again, no, no offenses intended to, to Rosenman, who I'm sure is a you know, wonderful person, and I'm sure he, he's a very competent musician. Don't know if he was actually, in retrospect, if he was the best choice to to do the music for this movie. And, you know, the reality is the, the format of an animated film coming out in the 70s, maybe there wasn't a right choice. And certainly that is something we need to consider. But all of the like the hundreds uh, hundreds of th- of uh, different motifs and themes that Howard Shore came up with for the Jackson movies coming over to this and you basically get a uh, a little bit of a hero theme and then you also get a lot of this kind of mud- muddled kind of dull plotting almost generically sinister music anytime something negative or evil mm-hmm. is on the screen do, 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 do. it's i don't even know what it's um again not trying to be mean or snarky or anything like that it's just this the music in this movie point blank did not work for me the high charge music did, is i i just preferably don't like that style but it in fitting with lord of the rings it has more of the instruments that you would actually hear Mm-hmm. In in Middle Earth, you know the type of like actual like ac- acoustic instruments, and like you said, the just massive amounts of themes and stuff that's you know tied right in with Tolkien. You know it was that yeah the the amount of work and preparation done on that one compared to this this one's a generic. I'm a I, I'm a sucker for cheesy soundtrack music, so I I, I enjoy it, but it is a late 70s cheesy orchestra soundtrack yeah to some extent i I agree with you on that now my familiarity with rosamund now he's got a fairly large filmography but my familiarity comes from uh an area where i generally go against the grain of popular opinion because uh leonard nimoy wanted him to do the score for star trek 3 yes and it got vetoed by the studio uh but then when star trek 4 came out he had a little bit more clout and he got Rosenman 
to do this the score for that and i've heard a few people criticize that saying it's the worst score uh you know that it's it's it doesn't fit the the movie uh that it almost sounds like christmas music at times and i kind of like that score and i don't think it would have been fitting if he did something similar for star trek 3 because that was a more uh a darker movie in its own way this oh, star trek 4 was different tonally yeah star trek 4 yeah. had a very light tone and i thought the score that he came up with for that was perfectly fine and i actually enjoyed it uh but that's that's my familiarity with him really yeah well, well score star, star trek, trek 4 me star as well. trek 4 was the fir- oh, i in my opinion it's the only official star trek movie that has done the like bridge between star trek fans and a mass audience truly you know like yes. they got the mass audience for the jj abrams in the seats for it but this one people were i mean i remember people were going to see star trek four numerous times who didn't even go to see star trek movies they it was accessible to them on a different level and the music you know his music is more uh less it, it, it's it's he his music is tied to its times, so his music sounds like it in points music you would hear set in modern times because it is set in modern times. And I think if they would have gotten you know traditional Star Trek music in there, it would not have worked. They were they were crossing they were crossing some lines, and I yeah I never understood what the big problem with that score was. Well, the um. The the question I had, and I, and I guess I, w- I would put this to both of you, is um, I, I came away from the movie kind of, again, there's no way to say it without sounding a little bit snide and perhaps rude, but sort of thinking that Rosenman is intentionally or unintentionally kind of this kind of second wave, uh, part of, like part of the second wave of uh, Williams' sort of follow-ups. Do you guys think that's a fair summary of the music as we heard it in Lord of the Rings and perhaps other parts of Rosenman's uh, output. He's not not necessarily intentionally. Few are. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that was going to be my, yeah, show me somebody who is. But, you know, somebody who's basically part of that same overall movement of the old-timey scores and everything of, you know, because, I mean, John Williams could be swashbuckling without being Errol Flynn. You know, and he could be suspenseful without being Hitchcock. You know, he always had that dynamic quality to him. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's had the longevity that that he's had. Whereas some of his contemporaries, maybe they understood like the flavor that he was working with, but they didn't necessarily have the same gift. Do you think that's that's a fair thing to say or? Oh, sure. Yeah, I. I think it like John Williams is. I mean, he does these meticulous scores where he's ty- he's he's not just you know. There's stuff that's a little bit timed up to here where you know someone will sweet swing a sword and it'll go blim 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 you know as yeah. he's swinging his sword. But there's not an awful lot of that. You know, John Williams scores an entire movie like this. I think he he tried to do it by just doing more. Here's a here's a few here's an evil theme here's a sweeping heroic theme and here's you know general background music and we can put it in it you know they can put you can put it in and move it around for the most part you know where whereas with John Williams it's it it can be tied in 
to you know to the frame. So, but he definitely was doing a lot of the sort of things John Williams did. But it's just it's more ham-handed and uh, mm. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe baroque, bombastic. In, in, in that you know, I mean, I mean, you can do a heroic score without it sounding. This one sounds, you know, this one sounds a little generic. It sounds almost like a variation of the Hogan's Heroes theme. The bam, Well, I think I think when you look at the uh, the composers for film work, you know, you have your different generations, and the initial generation, you know, for silent films and for early talkies, I think they were just concerned with having music that kind of maybe had a little bit of the tone of the movie you were going to see, but they didn't really yeah. worry about syncing it all that much or, or anything yeah. along those lines. Then in the, in the the really in the 40s and the 50s, you know, maybe a little bit in the late 30s, but mostly in the 40s and the 50s, you got a, a generation of, of, of composers where they would try and come up with much more meaningful yeah. scores, you know, Gone with the Wind in 1938, or, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? I, all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank, the guy who did most of the Alfred Hitchcock work. Um, oh, Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, that's that's really the first generation of serious composers in, in movies, as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, because you started, the, the studio system started setting it up where you would have these guys in-house, and, you know, you would have this whole setup and orchestras for them sitting there, so you don't have to you know, meticulously arrange it so they could sit and they and they had the you know big booths of the now Bernard Herbin could sit down with a with a nice projection going on and and work on it and they had you know these big companies and they could they could pump it out and then once you set that then you're setting a bar and the bar's been there ever since although you know I mean we're still looking at we're we're looking at more people writing music today that's just sort of atmospheric that you could put well like i like i said i think you have your your generations you have your you know your bernard herman's in in the first generation then the second generation would be your john williams and your leonard roseman people of that nature and then eventually we get to the point where you know you can score films because you were in oingo boingo right right (laughs) although he does he does do he you you know if you watch um peewee's big adventure some of his some of his stuff is that sort of level of timed he's mm-hmm. kind of an exception because before he even you know oingo boingo was they were all you know cl- classic they were like circus and orchestra trained musicians so he was sort of before oingo boingo he was probably capable of of sitting down and scoring something on a piece of paper before ever playing an instrument but then you got mark Mothersbaugh, who went from devo the you know a synth player in devo mm-hmm yeah, and, and his scores sound nothing at all like like, like Devo. I it, it no. was a it, again the generational difference. It was um, you know sitting at home sick and uh, just feeling miserable for months really uh, with mono my senior year in high school watching Rushmore and really loving that that the score for that movie that I don't even know what to call it. Um, and then discovering that the the composer, formerly of Devo, and it's it's of all things. I mean, what an interesting start to his career. I mean, again, we're we're kind of moving away from Lord of the Rings here. And I apologize <laughs> for that, but I couldn't let that go. I mean, Mark Mothersbaugh, he's I think he's the real deal, and he's a certainly a welcome alternative, especially in the '90s, to all the 
the Elfmans and Elfman sort of clones that were kind of wandering around for a while. He Elf- really Elfman was a breath of fresh air. At the beginning, but he kind of wore out his welcome to me. You know, he sort of had a few um, notes that he just hit over and over and over again that were really neat at first, especially like Pee Wee's Big Adventure and stuff. But after a while, it was just like, all right, uh, it's a Danny Elfman's word. Yeah, it's it's become to me it's become too recognizable as Danny Elfman. Yeah, you know, it's he needs to be able to, in my opinion, and. Clearly, my opinion probably doesn't matter to him, but in my opinion, he needs to show that he could do something different, something that you're going to listen to and you're not going to know it's Danny Elfman. I love, love, love John Williams, love him more than anything. In every Star Wars movie I see, I never pay attention to the John Williams, you know, the music just flows with it. Through, it's only like the second and third viewing that I'm like, I'm going to pay attention to the music this time. Right. Well, I think that's he, what the music is supposed to do. You're right, not supposed right, to sit exactly. there fixated on the music. The music is supposed to enhance it, not take, oh, yeah. take oh, it I'm over. experiencing it, but not consciously the first time, you know, and that's and Danny Elfman, it's hard not to experience him constantly. He's just sort of knocking on the side of your head. It's me. And to think like, you know, I can tell you for a fact, I walked out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I walked out of Star Wars. I I walked out of Superman the movie not thinking about the theme and those are so iconic and they're so great that somehow that they blended in with the action so well that it created the mood but it didn't take away from it it didn't take the, the spotlight off of the action that you were no, seeing it, was, it enhanced perfectly it integrated so to me that's what a soundtrack is supposed to do and then later when you hear it on repeated viewings it's like oh my god this is iconic you know yeah. that's the raiders of the lost ark theme that's the star wars theme that's the superman theme and and you can go on and on and on with it jaws uh, don't forget jaws you yeah. have to mention jaws yeah definitely uh you know there are some movies where that's a little different uh, you know i would say usually in horror you know in halloween or in the exorcist the, the soundtrack enhances it and it or even the omen for that matter it 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 is memorable afterwards because it creates a spooky atmosphere. <laughs> yes. So that's that's a little different. And you might see it sometimes in comedy as well. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, you know, that you mentioned is not a bad example of it where, you well, know, that, that little bubbly music. It. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, and you might notice it when you're watching it. Music. But on a movie like this, Lord of the Rings, I don't want the music to be what's jumping out at me. And it didn't, quite frankly. I thought it was fairly well done. Uh Although it's, it's not one, yeah, it's not one that I'm going to listen to afterwards and say, "Oh, you know what? I want to put this on in the car." Uh, so you know, it's somewhere in between. But I thought it was effective. Put it at that like, way. Like when when I when I when I played the Lord of the Ring when I got the vinyl and I played it, it's enjoyable to me because it's cheesy. But like the word that comes to mind is it's it's like when you listen to it on its own, it sounds almost garish. It's hmm. like a little 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 like exaggerated. It doesn't come off like that on the screen, but like. As a record, it, you go, wow, wow, this is really, uh, really cheesy. <laughs> so now before we get to the final question on this movie, is there anything else direction-wise, theme-wise, story-wise, anything else that you feel is worth uh, discussing? One of the things that – this, again, is a nit, I've got a, I've got a bunch of nitpicks in case that hasn't become clear. But one of the nitpicks that I have is if you read, if you read the book – um, the I don't even know what else to call it except Gandalf exercising uh, King Theoden. 
it's uh, it's basically something that's sort of it happens on the page and you can kind of visualize that it's a very slow transition and it's happening out there and it's in the daylight and you get the idea that even the daylight is hitting Theoden in a different way now that Saruman's influence is being slowly and gradually expunged and everything and his his face is becoming more more youthful and again I mean I know you don't want to dwell too much on Jackson and that's fine but just to say that you know, I think Jackson, he changed the setting for that into the throne room, but he basically locked in on what I think Tolkien was trying to go for in that moment of Gandalf removing Saruman's influence from Theoden. Whereas here in Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, it's here again, you, you never really got the idea that Theoden was operating under Saruman's influence. You almost got the idea he was being, intentionally or not, he was being misled by by warm tongue and oh absolutely so, i thought that that was what i walked away with in my mind was that warm tongue was the one uh, influencing him and it wasn't saruman right and the reason that's kind of a problem for me is you know sometimes it, it's kind of like han shoots first you know by itself it's not that big of a big of a change when you think about it except for what that means further down the line for the character the actions that he takes and everything it actually in the moment is not important, but it becomes important, I guess, in the broader sweep of the character. And same thing with Theoden, where if he's truly this incompetent, then it seems like he's just trading off one master for another one. Whereas if he's being purged of an evil influence, he was acting against his own his own kingdom's self-interest unknowingly because he at the, he he had he had become so subverted, he was so just absorbed into in, in Saruman that really what Gandalf did was probably the greatest thing that anybody has ever done for Theoden and no one in his inner court even knew to do it. And it, 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 it just says so much about, uh, about Gandalf, about Theoden, about uh, the, uh, the Rohan court, etc. And that being as murky and ill-defined as it was in the animated version, honestly, it, it did take something away from from the movie for me, and I'm not I'm not trying to criticize it because it's different from the book. This is a change that really did not need to be made. Um, if I had one general direction <clears throat> note that I would have made to Ralph Bashke, which would have probably got me punched in the face anyway, whatever it was, <laughs> um, I would have told him to be more himself with this because in his earlier movies. You have like your main characters, and sometimes his main characters were kind of wooden, but like his side characters and interesting characters would always be doing something like that would visually illustrate their their character, and it would be insanely exaggerated a lot of times, or there would just be little character moments constantly going on that he there's there's only two of them in here, and they're very light versions of like say stuff you would see in his earlier films but they're and they're both with the, the flawed Sam character but there's an early scene on with Gandalf where you know Sam is very suspicious and scared of Gandalf and Gandalf's talking to Frodo and at the end as they're about to walk away he just gives Sam a little bit of a boo you know <laughs> just 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 messing with him just randomly and then that's something that that Ralph Bashke just threw in and it was just a nice little nice little touch it meaning you know just a nice little character moment between the two of them and then there's a 
the the part where they're in the boat with when Frodo's running off and Sam's paddling one way and it's just a simple little gag and Frodo's paddling the other way and they're having their conversation and paddling both in paddling yeah, like that. and that going nowhere. That's just a nice little visual gag. He, sh- I think he should have indulged himself in some more of those and given the movies a little more personality and it might have gone over a little well, a little better. Good point. Good point. I agree. But that's that's about the only other thing I would have to say about it. Okay, so now we get to the big question. Is it yours? And if it isn't, where does it fall on the yours scale? Uh, your choice. Whoever wants to go first. All right, I'll go. It ain't Jaws. <laughs> I, 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 my struggle with this was deciding whether it was Jaws 2 or Jaws 3. And I have to put it in Jaws 2. Although it has a lot of traits of Jaws 3. Where, like, Jaws 2 was sort of a, a solid rehash of Jaws. And Jaws 3 was trying to do something different. But was just like <laughs> a kind of a low budget version version of it. This one is a, was a high budget. It's not, and it was, and it was, it was trying to do something. It was trying to pull off something almost impossible at that point. You know, I mean, this and Dune were like the two big, you know, windmills to tilt at, and uh, and he did not succeed at really a hundred percent pulling it off. But he like succeeded enough to pull it into Jaws two character category so i'm i'm saying the solid jaws too i tend to agree with that the you know i might have even gone so far as to say this is jaws three to me what really puts this movie over the top of all things is the rotoscoping because that that creates whether it's intentional or not that creates a a style that the movie is working with and i would almost compare it with um uh Again, not to go off topic, but I'm just going to draw a comparison here. The uh, the original uh, Star Trek series, uh, the the original show, where there are there were decisions, uh, color decisions, or sometimes um, <clears throat> effects decisions uh, made with that show that fit into a style now, but really they were only made at the time because. How shall I put it? There were technological limitations with the TVs yeah. that people were watching at home. You have to make things obvious. So the stars, this, like the star fields that are shown in the show, they're not really supposed to be interpreted literally as these big giant stars. They just have to be visible on what could be a black and white TV set or some tiny little color TV set. And so all these years later, that sort of creates a style that may not have been intentional but is nevertheless, I think, valid. And I think that same kind of philosophy applies with the Lord of the Rings animated movie where the rotoscoping and the, the monochromatic visuals and um, just the, the, the kind of strange but yet effective uh, animation techniques that were used to depict all of these strange characters and strange environments and huge battles and all of these sorts of things. It all works to create a style that... I don't know if Bakshi necessarily intended to uh, to create, but he nevertheless creates it with this this animated film that looks so unlike anything else that's out there. Whether you love the movie or hate it, the one thing I I think you should be prepared to give this movie is there's 
really nothing else out there that looks quite the way this does. Even Disney, which used a similar rotoscope technique, that was done, I think, in the as a bow in the direction of wanting to create something that looked really smooth and elegant. And the stylistic approach that's used in this film, this is actually done more to affect mood. Uh, not quite horror, but something like kind of like scary fantasy or something. I don't even know what, you know, how to categorize it. Evil blacklight poster. Yeah, there you go. That works. <laughs> and, you know, I, that, again, I, I'm not trying to beat this to death. I don't know if this was an intentional thing on Bakshi's part, but it nevertheless really contributes a lot of positive uh, energy to the movie for my participation. That to me is why this movie is very firmly Jaws 2. All right. Uh, I have to tell you, I I battled in my own brain over this of where I was going to put it, because as I said earlier, I think there are some significant weaknesses in this movie uh, that just exist, whether it be the animation style, whether it be the direction, uh, whether it be the voice acting. I think there are weaknesses to it that I've always been able to overlook and enjoy it despite that. Uh, I think in my heart it's a Jaws 2, but... If I have to remove myself and just be a true critic of it, I think I have to have it land on Jaws 3. However, if you Mm. are a fan of the source material, or even if you're a fan of the Peter Jackson versions, I really think that this is kind of a must-watch just to get a different perspective on it. And it certainly doesn't doesn't let you down as far as that goes. And just... To, to keep in mind, I'm, I don't compare in, in the ranking system, I'm not truly comparing them to the quality of the Jaws movies. Uh, you know, <laughs> I just use those as, as, a, uh, as a template because in, in the Jaws movies, I rank Jaws 3 as a Jaws 4. Uh, you know, this, this is better than that. This is not, it's, I'm not saying this is the equivalent of that as far as movie watching. I would... Any day of the week, I would rank this as a much better movie than Jaws 3 is. I'm putting it in the Jaws 3 category for the purposes of my ranking system. Uh, so, you know, by that standard, it's it's a movie that's worth seeing and enjoyable. Uh, but I think unless you really have a, a, a feel for the material and a love of, you know, what Tolkien did with this world, I think... You'd see it, and you'd walk away, you'd be entertained, and that would be it. I don't think it would be yeah. something that would stay with you beyond that. And I think Jaws 2, I reserve for something a little bit more than that. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm putting it as a Jaws 3, unless, I'm putting the caveat, unless you're a big fan of the source material or the Jackson movies, because then I think it's almost a must-watch. Hmm. So and that, well, well, and that is kind of an interesting an interesting standpoint. I figured that if, you know, going into this, you know, one is kind of indisposed to make predictions. But if, if you'd asked me, I would I would have bet you money that uh, Honeywell would have said, oh, this is firmly Jaws 3. And you would have said, this is totally Jaws 2 material. So, uh, boy, was I wrong. Well, to, to quote Roddy Piper, every time you think that you have the answers, I change the questions. I, I think watching this post the Peter, I think I actually like this. I I, 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 the Peter Jackson movie did not make me like this movie less. It made me enjoy it more because of the. Di- I like that that it's a different perspective with this different decisions made. It makes it more interesting when you when you're sort of comparing it in your mind to the Peter Jackson version while watching it. And the Peter Jackson version doesn't destroy it, you know. So no, it does not. 
In fact, the Peter Jackson version actually helps to resurrect it a little bit because, yeah. unfortunately, this is an incomplete story. And if you watch the Peter Jackson one, you have the perspective of what happens after this movie ends. At least you know what happens, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you Very know, it, 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 it eliminates some of that empty feeling. And that's being said, even having read the books after I, I saw the movie, uh, it's still nice to have been able to visualize it. And once again, the Rankin and Bass version was not going to do that trick for me. <laughs> so thanks for coming on guys i really appreciate you coming on and it's been too long so i'm glad we were able to get together and discuss this oh, well, thank yeah you for having i'll me. see you and i'll see you in a year for um the odd couple too <laughs> <laughs> well I, I like i said I, I i've already extended the invitation hopefully you guys are uh on board and we'll we'll do the peter jackson movies uh you know as 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 the time becomes available to us, I know uh, some of us, and by some of us I, I mean you, Trent, uh, have some personal things that are going on in our lives that might keep us busy for a little while. Uh, so, you know, it, we'll work our schedule around that a little bit. Well, uh, what I've been told is that the DA has been extremely patient with me. That's what my attorney's been saying, so it's nothing to worry about. So I think we'll be all right. But uh, thank you very much for having me. This was a real blast. And I look forward to coming back for the Jackson movies. That'll be a lot of fun. Cool. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. All right, all right, just a minute. Gandalf! Greetings, Frodo. Gandalf, it's really you. Oh, it's been so long. Seventeen years since Bilbo left. You look the same as ever, Frodo. You look older, Gandalf. Oh, I've been on a long journey. It's the ring, isn't it? Bilbo's funny magic ring. You always used to look like that when you talked about it. Bilbo's funny ring? It makes you invisible. Give it to me, Frodo. Give you the ring? For a moment only. Can you see any markings on it? There are none. It's quite a plain ring, really. Well, then, look. <gasps> Wait. Do you desire it so much already? No, but, but why ruin it? Because it is altogether evil. It will corrupt and destroy anyone who wears it until he passes into the world of shadows under the power of Sauron, the Dark Lord of Mordor. Not Bilbo! You are the one who has the ring now. It's... it's not even warm. No. Not even a dragon's fire could harm that ring. Ash, Naz, Dabatulu. Ash, Naz, Gimbatul. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, find them. <laughs> <laughs>